This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Well, we are in the middle of uh, open enrollment for the next go-round for healthcare provided through healthcare.gov, as well as the state exchanges. And as you are starting your shopping for the holidays, what do consumers need to be looking for, out for? We're shopping for this type of purchase. We are joined uh, on the phone by Dan Mendelson, who is the CEO of Avalier Health, who is also a healthcare management lecturer here at the Wharton School. Also with us, Amanda Stark, who is an assistant professor of healthcare management here at the Warden School as well. Dan, great to have you on the phone. Amanda, great to have you in the studio. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Dan, uh, what is the number one concern for people who have to go buy their health care coverage here now in year two? So the number one concern, without a doubt, uh, is uh, premiums. So when people go to purchase insurance, they look at premiums. It's the first thing they look at. And this year, premiums are going to be going up. Uh, so on average, premiums are going up by about 3%, according to, to our analytics. Uh, but it's very important for consumers to go out and shop because some people's plans are going up by a lot more than that. And in fact, the most popular plans in the market have an average premium increase of 10%. So mm. when people go out to assess their plans this year, they're going to have to take a careful look at, at premiums, and I think that's really the first place to start. And we know from uh, existing research that consumers are not as willing to shop around and switch plans as maybe they should be. And when they do that and they just sort of stay stuck in place, uh, they leave a lot of money on the table. I, I know that you threw out that number 10%, but in terms of the ballpark numbers, how much money are, is that specifically, that 10%? Well, you know, interestingly, that 10% can be hundreds of dollars for an individual, and it has to do with the way that particularly uh, moderate to lower income people are subsidized under the exchange. So it is an individual uh, determination, but it can be a very significant number for people who are eligible for subsidies. And that's especially true when you think about people who in the past have gotten coverage, perhaps through an employer. I think a lot of times on the exchange, consumers can experience some sticker shock when they realize just how much health insurance costs. <laughs> I, I, I can believe that. Um, what did, Amanda, the, the insurance companies, from what your uh, uh, research over at Healthcare Management is, is leading us to, what did they really learn the most about the insurance companies through the first year of running all these programs? Yeah, so I think... One thing that we would expect over time as economists is that insurance companies will just learn about demand and learn about cost, and they'll adjust their prices accordingly. So some of these changes in prices might have to do with things like the set of consumers who are enrolling in plans, and also just insurance companies who potentially mispriced the first year. Yeah. Dan, obviously, for, for the first year, you had uh, uh, quite a bit of uncertainty from the insurance industry. Uh, going into year two, uh, I've heard a lot of stories about, you know, you will see some insurers who will pull out of some states but will go into others. There's There will be a lot of shifting around uh, for the insurance companies here for year two. 
You know, I would say that um, while that is true, the most important aspect of this is how stable the marketplace is okay. given the fact that this is a brand new program and it you know uh, a year a year ago there were no insurance exchanges and this was all a theoretical construct and what you have now across the entire country are competitive markets in in, in almost every state you know with a couple of exceptions and you have multiple companies competing for consumers business uh, really across the country, and I think it's really quite remarkable. Now, I, I agree completely with Amanda that it's the kind of thing where the insurance companies will reassess uh, for this year, and they are, and so that's why you see premiums going up and down. But the the products are remarkably consistent over last year. There are a few changes that we see, uh, but generally they are narrow network products with uh, high deductibles and relatively low premiums, and those are, are – are uh, features, if you will, that the market did have a chance to acclimate to last year. And it's important to remember that these plans are complicated, so deductibles are hard to understand, and all the financial features are difficult, and on top of that, consumers have to have a sense of what hospitals they want to have access to. So while many consumers do focus on the premium, and we have lots of research that confirms that, I think it's important uh, to take a more holistic view of the health insurance product and think not only about the premium, but also about the other financial features of the plans like co-pays as well as the network. And how much does the premium, man, is still, with the sticker shock, thinking about that, how much does it still scare people? So our research in Massachusetts would indicate that people really do just focus on that premium and to the extent that they will just buy the cheapest thing. So sure. uh, we have some research showing that the cheapest plan in any given market gets something like a 20% bump in enrollment. Now, that's before all the subsidies and individual prices that Dan was talking about. But still, this idea that consumers are going to gravitate towards the cheapest plan uh, is is important. And, and in that context, the cheapest thing from a premium perspective is not necessarily the cheapest plan for a consumer that has serious chronic illness. Absolutely. So yeah. That's really the, the, um, the, the thing here is that it's really important to look beyond the premium to look at deductibles and at co-pays and as Amanda was saying at, at network access because those things are, are really will determine and you know the, the thing that we, we did a study uh, Avalier did a study, um, it was about a year and a half ago, about looking at patients who had very high uh, co-pays for biologics and found that, that uh, about 24% of people who had a copay of over $500 would abandon an oral oncolytic, an oral cancer drug hmm. at the point of sale. And all of these plans have that kind of design. And I think, again, that you know, when, you, when you look at the at the kind of benefit design that consumers are facing here, it is really important for people to understand what it is that they're buying. We're talking with Dan Mendelson, who is the CEO of Avalier Health, also Amanda Stark, who is an assistant to professor of healthcare management here at the Wharton School. Uh, Dan, obviously a lot was made, at least in the media, uh, about, you know, for those people that decided not to get health coverage through healthcare.gov, that they were going to be ending up facing a, a tax bill, an extra tax bill, uh, you know, come 2015. Is, is that still a, a factor? What were those numbers? Do we do we even know the ballpark of, of 
for those people that decided not to get health care coverage, and there were a few out there, that, that what the repercussions were for not doing so. Yeah, there, there, is a, there is a tax penalty. And while the administration has not uh, dwelled on it, it can be up to 1% of income. It phases in over time. So there is a, a strong incentive for people to, uh, to go out and sign up. And, and uh, that is something that, that you know, with, with um, some pretty good degree of certainty, I think we'll be driving enrollment in 15. And I guess the other part, going back to the health aspects of it, is uh, a lot of people that uh, were in this area of, of making that decision, even if you are somebody that is healthy, uh, when you think about, you know, you eat well, you exercise, uh, you, you live a, a lifestyle that will keep you in shape, uh, the health care is still a necessary part of your life because, you know, you could be playing basketball and you could blow out your knee. And if you don't have the health care coverage, you're going to be looking at a, you know, a, a surgery to repair your leg. And, and that's in the tens of thousands of dollars. And I think, you know, Dan highlighted the importance of insurance from the standpoint of things like medication adherence, which is certainly true. But also, this is a this is a product that insures you against going bankrupt in that scenario in yeah. which you you blow out your knee. So I think it's important to think of the product not just as facilitating access to healthcare, but also providing a great deal of financial protection. Um, and there, you know, some features that you might normally uh, ignore about the plan, like what's the out-of-pocket maximum, are yeah. really important. So, uh, you know, there's going to be some limits on what out-of-pocket maximums can be under the Affordable Care Act, but that's going to be an important feature of, of a plan that provides you some nice financial insurance. And there's still a lot of people out there, uh, Dan, that, that still have a, a lot of questions about and understanding uh, the whole process of the types of insurance that they need. What are the coverages that really are important to them? That That is, I think, still one of the biggest hurdles that we have to deal with even here in year two. Yep. I think that when, when we first analyzed these products that came to market last year, these the, the, there are a lot of ways in which these products differ from commercial insurance, and we talked about a few of them before, they're relatively higher deductible. So the average silver plan has a deductible of $2,500. The average bronze plan has a deductible of about $5,000. So consumers are facing those costs out of pocket before they, they get insurance coverage for most things. Um, these products do, though, have uh, free, you know, a lot of a lot of incentives for people to come in and get preventive care. You know, so that's mm -hmm. again one of the features that was designed into into the law. One of the things that that I found remarkable and pretty surprising was that was that there has been an acceptance of these relatively narrower networks. So consumers are adjusting to them and uh, realizing that that. They can't go to anyone. They can't go to to use your your uh, your ACL surgery, which is one that I happen to have had. Um, <laughs> you know, they can't go to any provider that they want. They're going to choose somebody in the network, and they're they're accepting that that relatively narrow network product. And we haven't heard a lot of complaints about that. And so we have some evidence from Massachusetts that consumers are willing to accept these much narrower networks if they're accompanied by lower prices. And that's especially important if you're in a market where there are providers like hospitals mm -hmm. um, that have a lot of market power. You know, I think one of the other things is that, is that, and this story has really not so much been told, but we're doing research right now 
on um, a set of, of arrangements that Massachusetts Blue Cross has called the Alternative Quality Contracts. Mm-hmm. And when, when you have a narrower network, when, a, when an insurance company is operating with a narrower network, often it gives them the ability to engage more positively and more proactively on quality measures. Yeah. So that's something that, that, again, you know, it's important to consumers, and it is a story that, that hasn't quite yet been told about these networks. Just because of the fact that, that as you said, you're dealing with a, a smaller group of doctors and, and facilities that uh, you can really focus on that quite a bit better than you would if you, say, they had a, a much broader range of, yeah. of opportunities. Yeah, and you can structure contracts with them that incent them to... Sure do the things that you want them to do. You know, an insurance company doesn't go out and immunize people, yeah. but doctors do. And if there is a financial incentive for a physician practice to make sure that everybody over the age of 65 has a flu shot, yeah. they tend to accomplish those things. Well, that that incentivization of, of, of health care has been a topic I know that's been brought up a couple of times in, in that, you know, the, it is... It's a it's an interesting area to kind of discuss because of the fact that um, obviously doctors will be paid off of the numbers of patients that they see and and the services that they provide, but it, it is I guess in some respects taking the next step forward in the process. Absolutely. Look, you know, from my perspective, you tend to see um, really any economic actor doing what they are incented to do, and healthcare is no no different from no. that. If if a um, if a physician practice is incented, if they're paid on a fee-for-service basis and they're incented to see a lot of people, irrespective of whether there is a need there, um, you will tend to see volume be higher. If they are, if they are getting bonuses to reduce people's cholesterol and to make sure that they're immunized and to make sure that well baby visits are, are in place, they will do those things. And to me, you know, a lot of what's happening that has really been stimulated by the Affordable Care Act is rethinking the way that clinicians are paid to make sure that those incentives are actually aligned with the health system outcomes that we want. And some of that's coming from places like the Medicare program, but some of that's coming from the private market as well. And I think it's neat to see the kind of innovation and insurance products that we've seen on the exchange through the first two years. Is it even a little bit concerning to, to both of you the fact I, that I read a, a study that the Kaiser Family Foundation did? They, they were looking into a variety of aspects of, of, uh, of the Affordable Care Act in that th- one number jumped out at me that a lot of the people that they discussed, I think it was about almost three quarters of the people that they talked with with this study that they did said that they didn't even enro- understand that the enrollment period was in November. Yeah. A- and th- that to me, a- after all that has been in the media and all that it was talked about last year with the problems of of the healthcare.gov website and even the state exchanges, that, that to me still, it, it kind of just it jumps out like I can't believe that, that that many people don't know. Yeah, so insurance typically is not something people enjoy shopping for. It's <laughs> yeah. it's kind of like going to the mall on Black Friday. Um, so Scratching I, your fingers across the chalkboard. <laughs> so I think it's important um, for states and state exchanges as, as well as, you know, insurance companies to, to help get the word out. And uh, we saw, you know, some interesting and innovative uh, ag campaigns last year. I think uh, we've seen less of that this year, um, but it will be interesting to see going forward how different states uh, engage with their with their residents uh, in terms of outreach. You know, I would add that 
that um, so before before founding Avalier in 2000, I served as associate director at the White House Office of Management and Budget from 97 to 2000. And at that point, we were implementing the Children's Health Insurance Program, which was free insurance. Yeah. And we were going out into communities to help uh, commu- you know individuals in those communities understand the fact that they were now eligible for this free benefit. And uh, it was really hard to get people to sign up. There were language barriers. There were communication barriers around the nature of the benefit. Sure. Um, there were a lot of people who just simply do not trust the government and didn't want to have anything to do with the government benefit, even yeah. though their children were now eligible for free insurance. Yeah. And so th- when this is, n- this is dealing with a very challenging population, and there are huge communication issues here. And I think, you know, from, from my perspective, there, there needs to be a lot more communication, not only from the companies, but also from, from states and from the federal government to help make people aware of these options. Can that even be something that can, that, that can be overcome? Because I, I think in some respects, and I hate to say it this way, that, that's almost ingrained in, in what yeah. a lot of people think about the United States. Well, there's, there's, um, there's some aspect of time here, and over time... There's more acceptance and more advertising and more <laughs> translations into Cantonese and Spanish and other languages that are that are prevalent. You know, so yeah. part of it is time, and then part of it, I, I agree, is cultural and will never be never be fully solved. I mean, if there's if there's deep mistrust of the government, that that's I think kind of an American uh, construct, and and uh, we'll always be dealing with that. But I think there are innovative ways that you can reach broad populations. Uh, So one of the things that Massachusetts did, which I always like to point to, um, is they got the Red Sox on board. So the Red Sox would tell you that you needed health insurance during the seventh inning of every game. Sure. Um, And some other states have have tried approaches like that. And so I think, you know, we don't typically think of – of government officials being great marketers, but uh, maybe they need to put their marketing hat on. And, you know, that's, it's a great point, and and uh, in, you know how much Massachusetts accomplished, and and the the rates there of uninsurance are so low. No, yeah. they've been dealing, they've been working on that for a really long time, and they got a lot of a lot of congruence. And one of the things, of course, that we see with respect to the ACA is that it's very politicized, and so yeah. there are there are whole areas of the country where it's really um, difficult for politicians to line up sports figures because they don't want to do it because they're concerned about the politicization of the law. Yeah. So I think also part of it is that, that that we would be making a lot more progress if, if, if this were truly a bipartisan accomplishment and one that was embraced by both sides. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, that, that if kind of going back to what we were saying a second ago, that's something that you may not be able to ever overcome because of the fact that it, it, we just went through the political cycle, and it was the number one topic. Jobs obviously were a big one as well, but that was the the number one topic out there when you were talking about politicians going at each other, Republican and Democratic, and and even independent. Yeah, but here again, I think uh, as Dan mentioned earlier, you know, fundamentally believe people respond to incentives. There's a lot of money out there coming from the federal government uh, that states can states and state residents can potentially take advantage of. So I think over time, as some of the rhetoric dies down, yeah. uh, the incentives will take over. So then what, Amanda, from what you did your research on Massachusetts, then when you when you look at their, their success as a whole, what is it that potentially needs to be replicated in other states that maybe some are not doing to be able to make the Affordable Care Act better? 
So I think one thing that Massachusetts did uh, that we think is a success story is they tried to make it easier for consumers to pick between plans. So Mm -hmm. we know that consumers have a very, very hard time, even once you get them through the door, of choosing between plans. Um, And they don't necessarily know what words like deductibles and co-payments really really mean in their everyday life. Uh, And so Massachusetts uh, changed their website, standardized some plan features, uh, and really went through a a lot of continuous improvement in the hopes of, of helping consumers make choices while still providing a wide range of choice. And that's a a hard needle to thread, um, but one that I think is important. So preserving choice, uh, but guiding choice in ways that that help consumers so they're not overwhelmed and they can really locate the best plan for their needs. Simplify it a little bit and make it uh, just uh, that that much easier to kind of navigate. Anything you can do to help people uh, make the decision easier is is a win. Yeah, um, I agree completely, it's transparency and making sure that consumers actually have the information that, that they need. And, yeah. and to the extent that, that it can be simplified, sometimes that's with, with algorithms. You know, so, for example, being able to go online and um, type in information about your service usage, about the illnesses either that you have or that you anticipate in your family and understand uh, what the true cost impact would be. Yeah. Um, a lot of the plans last year uh, did not have information loaded about which providers were in or out of the network. Sure. And this year, it's a lot better. So as, as the years pass, there will be better information. But I also think that there's a lot of opportunity for, for um, you know, companies and organizations to, to make it easier for patients to make good choices, not only about cost, but also about the quality of the plans that they're choosing. The enrollment numbers ended up, what, at about 11 million, uh, I think, last year uh, for uh, when we were all said and done. Well, if if they're going to go up, what is a realistic goal if, if 11 million was the number last year? So the, the, exchange, the exchange enrollment last year was at about 8 million. Okay. And uh, you will naturally see some level of attrition coming into this year in that population because – People might become eligible for Medicaid. Some might get jobs, uh, so they will they will attrit. And some people will just decide that they don't want to pay the premiums and pay the penalty. You know, so and by our estimates, uh, you'd lose you'd lose perhaps about a million people. So it'd go down to seven. And then the question is, how many new lives do you do you pick up? And again, you know, we we do estimates of this. The penalties are going up. There are new populations coming in, mm-hmm. um, and and in our projections, we're, we're guessing that, that there could be between 9 and 11 million people signed up before all is said and done by the end of the year. Um, the administration has put out something of a target, which is uh, around, which is shy of the 10 million mark. Um, and, you know, that's, that's really the, the expectations, I think, that have been set at this point. We're talking with Dan Mendelson, the CEO of Avalier Health, and uh, also Amanda Stark, who is uh, Assistant Professor of Healthcare Management at the Wharton School. And, and Dan, I'll throw this to you. Uh, obviously, as we talk, we'd like this not to be a political topic, but it ends up being one. Uh, will there be any effect from, from the fact that it, there is now an all-Republican Congress? Or, or uh, you know, w- is what we know as the Affordable Care Act now in pretty good shape going forward for the next several years? I think the biggest effect of the election was in the gubernatorial races where you had a number of Democrats 
who didn't win, who wanted to expand Medicaid. Yeah. And um, so that was kind of the, the dog that did not bark. It was the expansion that did not happen. Yeah. And so we come into this time, and now we have a, a Republican majority in the Senate and a majority that is, that is not supportive of the, of the basic construct of the ACA. So you will see them send to the president a number of, of bills that are either oriented towards repeal or rolling back uh, key facets of the Affordable Care Act. I think it's quite likely that he will veto most of them. And then you really yeah. the question that comes up is whether at some point there can be uh, some kind of a, a brokered solution here yeah. where perhaps you would ramp back on the subsidies or, or you know, kind of that, that the administration would make concessions to a Republican Congress on some aspects in return for an acceptance and a codification of the, of the, uh, the law itself. I think that is unlikely in the immediate short term just because of the politics. The politics of the ACA are, are strong for the Republican Party, as you, as you mentioned before. Yeah. Um, and so in all likelihood, we are living in a world where there's a lot of debate about the Affordable Care Act going into the 16 elections. Amanda, how, how much better can the Affordable Care Act get uh, in 2015 and then potentially in 2016? I think what we'll see over time is just learning what works and learning what doesn't. And yeah. We'll sort of iterate, and it'll get marginally better over time. Um, I think that's uh, maybe depressing, uh, but it's also promising in that uh, we learn things as we go along, and that helps us improve in the future. And I guess in some respects, it's a lot better right off the bat because we haven't heard all of this, you know, innuendo and out there and, and issues with the websites, at least at this point, it, it, it seems like this is just kind of rolling smoothly into year two uh, as smoothly as you can with, with a topic like this. Sure. And I think once we have, you know, as, as we say, we have the lights on, uh, then we can start thinking about some of these consumer, just consumer support type issues that we talked about earlier. Amanda, thanks for coming in. Dan, thank you very much for joining us on the phone. Great to have you with us. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Dan Mendelson, the CEO of Avalier Health. Amanda Stark, Assistant Professor of Healthcare Management at the Wharton School. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Dot dot dot